Well, welcome today. Glad to have you here. If you're new, a special welcome to you. My name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here. Glad that you're joining us today. Uh, we are in a sermon series called Shadows, where we're talking about the questions and the doubts that sometimes come up as part of the Christian faith. And, and along the way, I've been uh, offering some different kind of resources that you can kind of go deeper in. And today I want to recommend a resource called Right Now Media. And uh, if you're not familiar with Right Now, it's kind of like a, a Christian Netflix of teaching resources. Uh, some of the, the best teachers in the Christian world are on there. It's video-based, and they teach about all kinds of topics. And by the way, if you're a parent, there's also some really great videos for your kids that are not teaching. They're more like, uh, you know, the kind of videos that kids enjoy watching. And so, so if your kids are spending time on the screen, like most of our kids are, there's something nice about at least having them being spending time uh, watching shows that teach the kind of values and the kind of uh, things that we uh, stand for. And so I just want to encourage you, uh, either way, you should go and look at uh, Right Now Media. Uh, you can't just go directly there. You have to go through our website because we as a church purchase a subscription uh, on behalf of the people here that are part of our church. So go to our website, ridgechurch.ca, under the tab Grow, and there you'll find it and you can sign up. And there's all kinds of great resources there. Well, this week we're going to talk about hell. And hell is one of the, the, the aspects of the Christian faith that caused people all kinds of questions and all kinds of doubts and all kinds of controversy. Because the, the question that comes up is this, how could God, if he is actually good and loving, how could he condemn people to an eternity of torture in the fires of hell? I mean, the, the image that people have is that, that there is this, you know, when people stand before God and they're judged, then screaming and begging for mercy, he takes and he hurls them down into this fiery pit of hell and says, too late. You had your chance and you missed it. And now you will suffer forever in a fiery eternity. And, and that idea, that, that kind of imagery is the kind of thing that causes a lot of people to be repelled from the Christian faith and others to have all kinds of questions and doubts. I mean, if God is such a good and loving God, why can't he just forgive everyone? Why, why must he be so very wrathful? So let's talk about that. Those are good questions. Let's start with God's wrath. Why is God so wrathful? Why does he get angry and judge people if he is so loving? Well, to understand that, you have to understand the nature of love. You know, if you love somebody deeply, there'll be times when you feel wrathful, not because you slipped up, but because of your great love for them. So if you love somebody deeply and, and you see that, that something or someone is ruining that person, whether it's somebody else that's ruining that person or if it's themselves who is ruining them, it makes you angry, doesn't it? Because, because you love them and you don't want to see their lives get wrecked. Becky Pippert writes this. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. See, God is wrathful because he, because he loves his people so much. 
And we would expect such a thing from someone who loves. I mean, think of the, think of the story of Robin Hood. You know this story, right? King Richard the Lionhearted goes off to a, a foreign land to fight a battle. And while he is gone, Prince John, the evil prince, takes over control of the land. And he, he oppresses the people and he taxes them and he mistreats anyone who stands up to them. And only Robin and his merry man, his merry band, band of men stands up to him. But imagine when Richard the Lionhearted finally comes back. He finally returns triumphant back to England to take back his throne. And when he gets there, the report is told Prince John did this and he did that. And he, with, he, he took advantage of the people and he executed those who stood opposed to him. And he, he raped and he pillaged the land. Imagine if Richard the Lionhearted, this good and noble, this loving king said, well, it's not good, but it's okay. And then he invited Prince John to come and to live in the palace with him and to co-rule the land with him and to, and to continue on and doing what he was doing. I mean, you'd say, well, that's wrong. That's not how the story should be. He should be punished for what he did. King, king Richard, if he is a good and loving king, will actually punish him. And we get that when it comes to Robin Hood. I mean, we get it when we watch our, 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 our action movies at the end of the action movie, right? You watch the whole movie at the end. The good guy corners the bad guy. He catches up with the bad guy finally. And what does he do? He's like, well, you probably should have done that. Why don't you come home with me, have a meal, live with my family at my place? No. Usually he blows them away, right? And we all cheer, right? We, we, there'd be something wrong if we didn't. So why is it that then we seem so upset when God, in his wrath, because of his great love for his people, for us, for all of humanity, that he would judge and punish the sin in the world? And sin, of course, sin is like, it's like a cancer. Sin is so insidious. It, it is so destructive that it, when, it, it, it's, it, when it enters a, a person, when it enters life, it's like cancer just continues to grow and grow until Ultimately, it tries to destroy it. Or sin is sometimes also compared to like a fire. It, it's a, it starts with a little spark that just grows and consumes everything around it. In fact, that is the very nature of sin and evil. It's parasitic. It cannot exist without devouring something good, right? I mean, look, a, human, a healthy human body can exist without cancer. But cancer cannot exist without a healthy human body. In fact, a cancer will not stop. It will continue to grow unless something stops it. It will continue to grow until it literally devours the, the body that it's in itself. And when the body dies, then the cancer itself is happy to die. Or same like a fire, same thing. It, it, it consumes more and more and more and more. And it doesn't stop consuming until there is nothing more to consume. And once it is destroyed, everything then itself also dies. I mean, that's... That's the picture of sin and evil. And, and it leaves such incredible destruction, but it all starts with a single malignant cell. It all starts with the tiniest little spark. The United Nations estimates that there's something like 2 million children who are enslaved in the sex trade around the world. It is a monstrous evil. It is an incredible wickedness. And in fact, many Christians around the world are involved in, in, in 
seeking justice for those who have been so uh, wickedly mistreated. But, but, but the question is, what is the source of that? I mean, if you trace the source of that kind of monstrous evil all the way back to its very source, it, it won't lead you ultimately to a group of evil men who sat together and concocted a wicked plan to enslave all sorts of children. Ultimately, it will lead you back to the lust in the hearts of individual people. Now, of course, the vast majority of people would have nothing to do with that kind of evilness. I mean, the vast majority of people are not pedophiles or sex traffickers or pimps. But that doesn't mean that the rest of, of the, the vast majority of people don't struggle with lust that can bring destruction in all kinds of ways into their lives. It's just a small spark that can grow into a, a giant flame that brings all kinds of destruction. And Jesus warns against this. Here's what he says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. See, Jesus warns that the consequences of sin can be devastating. But they start with just a small spark, which is one malignant cell. And if it's not dealt with, if it's not, something isn't done about that, it grows until it consumes you and is so devastating. And so, and so God deals with the sin in our life. He, he deals with the sin in the world. And the way he deals with it actually turns out to be much more kind and merciful than the way that the action heroes do at the end of the movie. But to understand how God punishes sin and why, it's important to go back and remember what it is that God is doing in the world. What, what is his plan? See, you go back to the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he made them so good and so beautiful. And then he created humans and he made this place to be a place where there was flourishing, where there was wholeness, where there was life life-giving activity everywhere that we went. But the first humans, and all of us by extension, have chosen instead of serving God to serve ourselves. And as a result, sin entered the world. And this is why God sent Jesus, to pay the price for our sin, to break the power of sin, and ultimately to redeem us from sin and restore us back to the place that he always intended for us to be. You see, the salvation that we know through Jesus isn't just about me and Jesus for this life. It's also what God is doing in all of creation. And the day will come when he returns to restore heaven and earth. The Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And when it comes to that new heaven and new earth, he's going to banish sin forever. So that there will be no more sorrow, no more anger, no more, no more sadness, no more sickness and the place that he is going to banish that sin is hell. But hell is not where most people think it is. You see, we have this image in our mind that hell is this, this torture chamber down in the bowels of the earth and that, that God you know, sends the screaming people down there to spend eternity tortured down there. But that's not a biblical picture of hell. The image that the Bible uses is that it is a place outside of the city. 
In fact, everywhere that Jesus uses the word hell in the, in the New Testament, it is actually a translation from the Greek word Gehenna. Jesus actually, every time it says hell, Jesus is actually saying Gehenna. And we in English have translated that into hell, which I suppose on the one hand is good. I mean, every time someone gets cut off, they're not left saying, well, what the Gehenna, right? I mean, th that, that's probably a good thing, but but the problem with that is that we have come to associate things with hell that the Bible doesn't. Gehenna. Gehenna is an actual place. You can find it on a map. It is the Greek name for the valley that was just outside the, the city walls of Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, that valley was called the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was known for two evils. The first evil was idolatry. It's where the people of Jerusalem snuck outside of the city, outside of the place where the temple of God was, out into the valley of Hinnom, and there they worshiped their false gods. They worshiped their idols. It's there that they cheated on God, like, a, like an adulterous person would cheat on their spouse. That's the first thing that happened in the valley of Hinnom. But the second thing that happened there was that there they would light fires they would start these fires and there they would take their newborn baby child and burn it in the fire as a sacrifice to the false gods. It was a place of child sacrifice. It was a place of incredible wickedness and injustice. So why does Jesus call, call Gehenna hell? Well, of course, because it was this place of incredible evil that was done. But there's another reason. And that's this. Because it was a place where people chose to go. People weren't sent outside the city gates because an angry, vindictive God forced them to go out there and do those things. No, instead they chose to go there of their own free will. In fact, the fires that burned in Gehenna were lit there by their own people. The, the fires of hell were lit by the people who were in it. See, the caricature in people's mind is that hell is this this torture pit. But that's not the picture that Jesus paints. The picture that he, Jesus paints is that hell is a place where sinners choose to go. And the anguish that they endure there is not of God's making, it's of their own. God doesn't create the power of hell. We do. God does not rape kids and murder his neighbors. Humans do. God is not the one who destroys relationships and spreads gossip and spews hatred. That's what we do. And those kind of destructive forces cannot be allowed into the city, into the new heaven and the new earth. See, contrary to the caricature that is so common in people's minds, hell is not about torture. It's about protection. God will protect his city, the new heaven and the new earth, from the destructive power of sin. So that not a single spark of sin, not one single malignant cell will enter into the place that he has designated for those who are going to live again the way that God always intended, with a flourishing in the life. See, God removes sin from his city, not because he's bad or evil, but because he is good. And the people that are going to hell I mean, are they screaming and, and begging for mercy and asking not to be sent there? Not at all. C.S. Lewis, the, the, the brilliant Christian thinker and writer, uh, wrote a, a book called the, the Great Divorce. 
And in it, he tells this parable of this busload of people that are in hell and they're put on a bus and they're brought to the gates of heaven. And there they're urged to get off the bus and to repent of their sin and to go into heaven. And he says, they don't want to. They say no, even though they are unhappy in hell. I mean, in hell, they're plagued by their pride and their paranoia and their self-pity and the certainty that everyone else is wrong and that they're right and, and that the whole world is made up of idiots. But they aren't willing to let go of that in order to enter into heaven. They would rather have freedom as they define it than to give that up so that they could be with God. Because they're under the delusion that if they go to be with God, they'll have to give up their freedom. And as a result, they, they won't have the kind of life that they always wanted. Even though the life that they have in hell torments them. See, hell, Lewis says, is, is the greatest monument to human freedom. And the Apostle Paul explains this. He says in, in Romans chapter 1 where he talks about sin, he says eventually if people insist on sinning, God gives them over to their desires. He says, okay, if this is what you really, 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 really want, then I will give it to you. You can have it. See, it's not a question of is God sending people to hell. Everyone who is in hell chooses it. It's actually the most fair thing. C.S. Lewis writes this. There are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God. Or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. So, hell is not this fiery pit where, you know, screaming, repentant people go. Rather, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity, apart from God, carried on in a trajectory into all of eternity. But because it's a choice not to abandon sin, hell is a slow disintegration. It's a fire in the soul of that person that slowly leads to increasing isolation, to denial, to delusion, to self-absorption, until a person is literally out of touch with reality. So no one who is in hell even asks to go to heaven. And this, of course, is what Jesus teaches. In one of his most famous parables uh, about, about hell, Jesus teaches this very thing. It's found in Luke chapter 16. If you read the, the, the chapter before this in this chapter, Jesus has been telling all of these parables all about the kingdom of God. And, and then Luke stops in the middle of telling all of Jesus' parables and he makes this observation. He says this, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And so now Jesus goes on to tell a parable about money and about hell. And here's what he writes, or here's what he says. Jesus says this, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sore. So Jesus tells this parable, he says there's these two men. One was rich. In fact, he had purple and linen. It was the, the Prada and the Gucci of the ancient world. I mean, the man was wealthy. He, he drove a Maserati. He drank the finest wines, ate at the, at the best restaurants around. And it turns out that the man was probably well-respected. He wasn't a mafia boss or, or some backsliding pagan. He was 
probably a Pharisee and highly respected in that place. But the other man, a man named Lazarus, he was a beggar. He he had sores all over his body, meaning that he was in constant pain. And he says that he was laid at at the gate of the rich man. In other words, he had some sort of disability. They literally had to carry him and put him there. And he was so poor that he didn't have enough food. He would have been hungry all the time. So he begged. And the only one who paid him attention, the only one who cared for him in that state were the dogs who would come by to lick his wounds. This is how Jesus begins this parable. But, but something that we often miss, it's profound to notice, is that this is the only parable, the only one of all the parables that Jesus tells, where Jesus gives somebody in his parable a name, Lazarus. Every other parable, it's like a farmer or, or a shepherd or, or a coin or whatever it is. But here Jesus gives one of the people in the parable a name. It's Lazarus. Now, what he does by giving them that name is that he humanizes Lazarus. Lazarus is not defined by his poverty. He is a person with people in his world who is loved by God. But fascinating enough, who he didn't give a name to was the rich man. Now, this is, this is the opposite of the way it normally works, right? Usually, we know the name of the rich and the powerful, right? We know Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. We know, you know, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. We know the names of the rich and the powerful, but not the names of the homeless and the poor and the, and the weak. That's typically the way it is. But in this case, the rich man doesn't have a name. Now, why? Why is it that that's the case? Because clearly, his parents would have given him a name. They would have given him an identity and and he would have been part of a community. But but see, what happened is that the rich man lost his identity as an individual and found his identity only in his wealth. That's why he was known as the rich man. It was what defined him. In fact, his riches were so important to him, so valuable to him, that he couldn't even be bothered to help out a man who is clearly, desperately in need of help. This is how the parable begins. Now, Jesus goes on and he says what happens next. He says this, The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am agony in this fire. So Jesus says both of these men die. One, Lazarus goes into heaven. He's at Abraham's side. And the other, the rich man, goes into hell where he is tormented by the fire that is there. But the the rich man who is in hell, he looks across and he sees Lazarus and he sees Abraham and he realizes he can talk to them. And so he calls out to them. And it's fascinating to know what he asks. From, from, from hell, what does the rich man ask? Does he say, Abraham, Abraham, I'm so sorry for what I did to, to Lazarus that I didn't care for him, that I didn't at least help him a little bit with all my wealth. Does he say that? No. But does he at least say, Abraham, I repent of my sins. Please forgive me. No. Does he even say, Abraham, please let me come over to that side to be in heaven? No, he doesn't. What does he ask? He says, please send the poor beggar back here so that he can serve me in hell. Right? 
I mean, that's what he asks. He is so consumed by his life, by his riches, by the life and the status that he had because of it, that he doesn't want to go to heaven. He'd, he'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. And what he asks is that that poor beggar come back and become his servant in hell. God gives him over to his sin. He says, if that's what you want, if that's how you want to define yourself, you can have it. And so this is how the rich man still thinks and acts when he is in hell. But of course, he's tormented. It sounds like, I mean, you read it, you say, yeah, but isn't he in the fires of hell? Isn't he burning up there? Isn't God torturing him? No, no, actually, he's not. You have to remember that this is a parable. A parable is a story that uses symbols and images to tell a larger truth. So just because there's something there doesn't mean it's a literal thing. So for instance, there's a parable where God is referred to as a farmer. It doesn't mean that God's out there shoveling manure. There's another parable that talks about us as being a lost coin. It doesn't mean that you're made out of metal and, and sleep in a piggy bank at night, right? It's an image that helps co convey a larger story. And the same is true when it talks about the fire that he is enduring in this, in this, in, the, in hell. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Well, we talked about this already. Fire is something that, that disintegrates, that consumes, that destroys. But it's not destroying his body. It's destroying his heart. It, it, it's, it, it's destroying his identity, which he had found always in his money. It's wreaking havoc in his heart, not his body. See, Jesus tells us that he is in torment in heaven, in hell. He's in torment in hell, but not being tortured. See, there's a difference between torment and torture. I can have a, a headache that torments me. That's different than if someone is taking a two by four and banging my head. That's torture. See, torment is, is something that comes from within ourselves. And torture is something that is inflicted on us from the outside. And this man is not being tortured in the flames of the fire. He's being tormented by the sin that he continues to hang on to and is literally unwilling to let go of. And Jesus' words confirm this. At the end, uh, Jesus says, uh, the, 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 the rich man says, I'm in agony in this fire. The word agony is this Greek word, odumaya, and it, it can be translated as grief or anguish. And it's about immersion, emotional toil instead of physical pain. And, and the reason we know this is because this same word shows up in two other places in the New Testament. It shows up in the story of Mary and Joseph. Remember, they went to Jerusalem when Jesus was only 12 years old. And they lost him there. They were on their way home when they realized he wasn't with them. And it, say, it says that they came back to Jerusalem and they were searching anxiously. Same word. The same kind of angst and, and, and emotionally upset you would be if you lost your son or daughter in the big city. It's an internal turmoil, but it's not a physical pain. And the other place where this same word appears in the New Testament is when the Apostle Paul arrives at the church in Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem. And they realize that they will never see Paul again because they know he will end up being arrested and, and imprisoned there. And so they gather around him and they, and they embrace him and they weep. And it says, that they, it says that they were filled with grief. And, and, and because they were filled with grief, that, that same word there means that, 
means the same idea, that they, they had this emotional pain that was happening in their life. And that's what's happening for the rich man in this parable. Because he's obsessed with his riches, even in hell. And that, the, the fact that he can't have everything that he wants there is burning him up on the inside, in his heart. So he asked for Lazarus to be sent to ease his emotional pain by becoming his servant. And this is how Abraham responds. Verse 25. But Abraham replied, son, Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Notice Again, the tone that Abraham uses here. He, he addresses the rich man not as like, hey, loser. Hey, idiot. Hey, you know, fool. No, he calls him son. He, he, he calls the rich man by his true identity, not the identity that the rich man insists that he is a rich man. And, and, and it's a term of endearment and kindness. I mean, this isn't, again, this isn't a picture of a, a poor repentant sinner begging, please, God. Forgive me and let me into heaven. It's not like he's reaching God and God, for God and God rejects him. This is a man who is clutching to his idols, who, who is choosing to keep his own self-definition and who is refusing to let go of sin, even as Abraham is so gentle with him. But Abraham says, actually, there's this, this huge chasm between us. So that you can't come here and, and we can't go there. See, God protects Lazarus now from the destructive power of the rich man's sin. No longer will God let the rich man treat Lazarus like a dog. See, when God establishes the new heaven and the new earth, he will not allow any sin to enter the city. Not a spark, not a single malignant cell to come into the city. And nor will he allow Lazarus to be dragged out of the city and into the valley where those who choose to go there go. You see, hell is not about torture. Hell is about containment. It's about making sure that the sin that is out there doesn't enter into the new heaven and the new earth. That those who want it can have it and that those who don't aren't affected by it. And see, that's important to understand what the Bible actually teaches about it. Because when you misunderstand the nature of sin and the purpose of hell, that's when people begin to look for all sorts of other ways to understand hell. I mean, again, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning. If you don't understand what the Bible teaches about hell, you think God is mean and vindictive. And you say, why can't God just forgive and let everyone into heaven? But if you think about that, that would mean that that would mean allowing a murderer who was unrepentant for his murder, who never said sorry and never felt bad about it, to sit at the same table with the person that they murdered. That, that would mean that a person who loved their riches so much that they let a poor beggar suffer and die at their doorstep would now sit at the same table with that poor beggar. It's not right. 
That'd be like someone saying, hey, why don't you marry me and bring all your old lovers into our marriage too? We'll all be together. It's kind of twisted, isn't it? It's not right. But others say, well, well, no, that's not right. But, but for God to, to, to torture people in hell forever because they misunderstand what the Bible says, that's wrong. So, so God will just kill them. If you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you just are destroyed. In theological terms, it's called annihilation. But, but this, this isn't a biblical concept either because it denies the power of Jesus' resurrection. He defeated death and sin on the cross. So for God to turn around and then kill all kinds of people just doesn't make a lot of sense. And it, Plus, it's kind of like saying, hey, would you marry me? And if you say no, I'm going to kill you. Doesn't sound particularly kind, does it? In fact, if somebody did that, we would say that's vindictive and wickedness and we'd put them in prison, wouldn't we? It's not, it's not what God does. Still others say, well, look, if God is a good and loving God, then he wouldn't allow people to suffer in hell forever. So even if they don't know him when they die, he'll still let them come to heaven. He'll redeem them. This is a theological idea called universalism. In the end, everyone goes to heaven. It doesn't matter who you are. You all get to go. But that's a little bit like saying, look, uh, uh, marry me or else I will lock you in the basement until you learn to love me. And don't knock on the door until you do. Right? It's also not right. God, of course, came to redeem us from the power of sin. That's what he did through Jesus. But, but the issue here is not that God is not willing to redeem. It's that those who are there don't want to be redeemed. They don't want to turn to God even when they're in hell. So there is no universalism that everyone ends up in hell because it would go against the very nature of what God is doing. Or everyone ends up in heaven because it goes against the very nature of what God is doing. He's not about to let even a spark or a single malignant cell of sin into heaven. Which brings us back to the biblical picture of how God is going to deal with unrepentant sin and evil in the world. It's containment. There's a huge chasm between heaven and hell. There are those who are inside the city and those outside the city gates. And this, this is actually the most merciful of all of the options. This is like saying, marry me. Or if you choose not to, then go your own way. See, God invites us to be with him, but he, he creates a space for those who would prefer their independence, who want to go their own way. He simply says, okay, if that's what you want to do, then you do that, but, but then you also live with the consequences of what you choose to do. Abraham says to the rich man, he says, look, there's this chasm between you and us. We can't go over there and you can't come over here. So here's what the rich man says next. He says this. He answered, well, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now the rich man gets all noble. He's like, well, look, if I can't, at least, at least go send someone to warn my, my brothers. Because 
Clearly, I didn't get enough information because if I'd have known, I'd have come. And, and, and Abram says, no, no, it's not about not having enough information. They have Moses and the prophets. They have plenty to know what God expects. So then the rich man says, well, but if a dead man comes back to life, then they'll believe. If a dead man comes back to life, then they'll all believe. If someone who's been in the grave for three days comes back to life, then everyone will believe. If they only saw that kind of a miracle. And Abraham says, no, that's not going to convince them either. You see, what the, what, the, what the rich man is saying, the subtext is, look, God, it's still your fault. If only you had provided me with more information. If only you had done the kind of miracle that, that I could not deny, then I wouldn't have been here. But it's not what the issue is. The issue is deeper than that. It's a heart issue. See, for the rich man, his heart was where his money was. So it really didn't matter how much information he had or, or what miracles he would sell, unless he was willing to change his heart around his money. Nothing was going to change him. Not even someone rising from the dead. And the same is true for us. The heart is ultimately the issue for us. In our heart is the is this spark of sin that threatens to set our world on fire. And we know it. I mean, just to... You know how a little gossip can set the office on fire. Or, or how a, a little lust can, if it's left undealt, can burn a marriage to the ground. Or how a little selfishness can spread like cancer and destroy a family. See, it's sin and death are the enemies. It's not a, you know, a lack of freedom to do whatever I want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. It's not, it's not the freedom to identify as myself by you know, my own identity however I want. No, no, the, the real danger in our lives, the real enemy in our lives is sin and death because they're the source of so much destruction in our lives. We have such a hard time controlling that. And that's why we need the grace of God so desperately in our lives. Because the solution to the problem of our heart is not more education. It's not simply to try harder. The solution is to have the grace of God in our lives through, through Jesus. See, the, the doctrine of hell doesn't make us sort of superior to others. We look down and say, ha ha. The doctrine of hell actually levels the ground for everybody. Regardless of who you are. I mean, before the cross, be, be, before the cross, we are all on level ground. Pick whatever dictator you want. Stalin, Pol Pot, Iamin. I mean, all men who ordered the deaths of millions and millions of people and put them next to my grandmother, who's the sweetest, kindest lady who would have never hurt a fly. And the question, the question from Jesus is not which of you is better. The question from Jesus is, will you let me heal you? Will you let me pay the price for your sins so that you can be set free and find new life? See, that's the grace that we learn when we understand properly this doctrine. See, when you understand what the Bible teaches about hell, when you understand not the caricature, but what it actually teaches, you realize that God is a good and a loving God who is totally justified in his wrath. 
because he hates the destruction that sin brings into our life and into this world so much, but also that he respects our free will so much that he's not willing to force us to do anything that we don't ultimately want to do. And so if we choose sin over God, he will allow us, even though the consequences are profound. Let's not do that. Let's not go there. Let's choose to follow him instead because his is the way of life and wholeness and flourishing. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Well, God, this topic is a, it's a tough topic. God, it's a challenging topic. And yet, God, we see again that what your word teaches is so different than the, the caricatures out there. God, we see again that you are a God who is good and loving, but not a pushover, not someone who just says, it's okay. Sin can come and destroy everything. Instead, you speak against it. You stand against it. And ultimately, you, you, you fight against sin. God, thank you. You've redeemed us and made a way for us to be right with you. Lord, may we live in light of that. God, may we not allow the spark to, to take hold in our life. May we not allow the, the malignant cell to begin to grow. But Father, may we seek holiness in all that we do. Father, so that we find life and hope and goodness. And of course, God, we thank you that one day we will spend an eternity with you where there will be no more sorrow and no more tears and no more sickness and sadness. So we pray this now with gratitude in our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for coming and joining us again today. I want to send you out with these words from the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah is giving this prophecy about the coming Messiah. He says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. He's speaking of Jesus, prophesying his coming. And, and then he says this, there'll come a day when the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. He's speaking of heaven. He's speaking of that day where there's a new heaven and a new earth and there is no longer any sin or sorrow or sadness or pain. This is the promise. This is the hope that God gives us. May you go this week, be blessed in the, in the knowledge of what God is doing. We'll see you next week.